folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to some of our local business partners who make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's my grocery store. And a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've got a takeout service as well. Uh, the, the cafe's not open yet, so yeah, use that takeout service. They're open seven days a week. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant at East 5th and Walnut, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Again, uh, they are just starting to uh, do in-house service there, but they are available for takeout as well. That's Hawk Restaurant. All right, with me on uh, this segment of the program, Pasha Morgan. Hello, Pasha. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Pasha has been very active in the uh, Black Lives Matter protests here in Des Moines. Uh, and he, Kathy and I have been to six of them, and we still haven't seen him. And that's because there are just so many people turning out uh, in in outrage about what happened to George Floyd, and in outrage about the the 400 years of uh, injustice against our, our black brothers and sisters. Uh, so, Pasha, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. Yeah. So I, I want to tell I know you were one of the people who were arrested, and it was a very strange arrest, too. But give me your perspective on the overall picture of, of what's happening, why it's important. Uh, you know, just kind, of, just kind of frame it for us so people have a sense of where you're coming from. Okay. Well, um, actually, it's, it's, it's when people talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, you, there's, there's, a, there's still a set of people who um, push back with the all lives matter um, because they're, they don't really have an understanding um, about how the, the disproportionate um, arrest and murder of black people by police officers, um, it, it, because it's so disproportionate, because the, it's so heinous and, and, and visible, it, it, it it's something that we can put a, a finger on and we can say, look, this is what we're talking about. So, but the fact of the matter is policing and the over-policing and the over-abuse and brutality and all of the things that kind of embody police enforcement in America um, affect all of us across color lines. Uh, if we can point out in the, because of the disproportionate numbers, because of the fact that we're pointing out that Black Lives Matter then we get changes in policing. We get changes in policy that affect all lives. So it's not it's not a it's not a only black lives. That's not what it's saying. It's black lives matter too. And therefore, once black lives matter too, all lives can matter. You know, and a guy a guy, a guy from New York, a guy from New York framed that really well. He said, if your wife comes up to you and says, Honey, do you love me? And he says, I love everyone. You know, right. he's missing the point. Or if uh, if somebody comes up to you and says, "Hey, my my father just passed away," and you say, "Everyone's parents die," you know, or you're all you're missing matter. Yeah, you're missing the point. Uh, you know, of course, right. all lives matter, but you know, to do that dismisses the uh, the the intense uh, discrimination that Black Americans have gone through and continue to go through. And, you know, right. It's a right. and and. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's been a long time coming, but it seems like we may be finally getting to the point where we're going to see real change. I mean, look what's happening in, in Minneapolis. Uh, I mean, I don't know where that leads. You know, disbanding an entire police force, force is a pretty pretty radical decision. Uh, right. But radical, I mean, by radical, I mean literally it gets to the root of the problem, which is what the word Absolutely. radical means. And so... We'll see where it goes, but uh, it's the kind of change that I think a lot of people have been, um, you know, clamoring for for a long time. Looking for and waiting for, absolutely. And, and, and just, that, just that simple fact of standing up against that authority that is not actually an authority, but actually a servant to the public um, that they have forgotten over time, uh, it, it, it will bleed into every aspect of society. It will bleed into the fact that though people in Congress um, are paid by us and their housing is paid by us and their health care is paid by us, they stand there and, and tell us that we're not allowed the same things. Um, it, it, it changes, it, it puts the power back in the hands of the people, which is exactly where it's supposed to be. And it takes effort to do that. And, and one, it does. one element of your commitment was uh, being arrested recently. 
Uh, that was at the yeah. very beginning of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, series I, of protests. I was I was arrested on Saturday. The first protest was on Friday. Um, I went to that. I actually spoke at that, and then I was there later on that evening, that night. And um, there were about 40 of us, and we were hit with tear gas and everything else because we didn't go home when they told us to, which, again, is our right not to. Uh, and so the next night, there was 300 people at the Capitol, and um, there were – basically, it was the same situation. Um, and as people were walking around downtown, which is their right to do, uh, police officers just decided that that was something that they didn't want. And so they just randomly started arresting people normally. And for the people that I was arrested with, it were it was the people who weren't running, who weren't doing because there was no reason to. Um, we knew what our rights were. That didn't change the fact that we were arrested, uh, thrown in jail for two days and charged with rioting. And you're, so, and you're, and possibly <laughs> you're, you're, you're black. Your, your, your wife is white. Yes, you were together. Well, she's you're... Mexican, but okay. in America, she's white. I <laughs> gotcha. So okay, right, right, right. Right. <laughs> and uh, and you were you were together. You were, mm -hmm. you were doing the same thing. Yes. You were arrested. She wasn't. Yes. <laughs> I was not just arrested. I was uh, the the police officer Grant Purcell because I am calling his name out because what he did was illegal and I'm not allowing people to hide anymore. So every time I've been asked about this, I've named him specifically. So the person who originally uh, uh, detained me uh, or kidnapped me um, was uh, Officer Grant Purcell. And he saw, he was looking at me, he was in the middle of the street. I looked at him. I said, hey, I'm going back to my car and put my hand up kind of like, hey, I don't even know. And so he kind of stopped. And then he decided for whatever reason, probably so he could, say that he arrested a rioter and make people feel safe. He decided that uh, uh, he was going to detain me anyway. And so he pushed me up or hit me up against the bridge with his riot shield and then threw me on the, flipped me over his back and threw me on the pavement. And I thought it was one, apparently at that time, four other officers joined him uh, to subdue a person who was literally had my hand saying, I'm, I was heading back to the car. Right. Yeah. And so, I know, <laughs> and I, I know you personally, I know you very well. We've, uh, We've worked together, and you are an emphatically nonviolent person. Uh, Absolutely, it just it just boggles my mind that they would try to try to somehow see it see you as anything but just a, a peaceful protester. And in this case, heading back to your car, holding my wife's hand, heading back to the car, and and that's where they because I when I realized that he was, because he did stop like I saw him I saw him he stayed, he he came from across the street and he I saw him see me and I'm black in America 44 years I'm an expert at this so I realized what was about to happen so that's when I I saw him see me and I told my wife I said babe you go and uh and she of course didn't but I let go of her hand at that point and he and then he started across the street that's why I put my hand up and said look well, I'm heading back to my car and he kind of stopped again and then he rushed at me and uh, said um, uh, what did he what did he say uh, get on what, what did he tell him get on the ground he get on the ground get on the ground but he was had me between a riot shield and the edge of the bridge and so then he decided that I hadn't got on the ground and he would flip me over throw me to the pavement now, were, were you injured at all uh, I mean, I'm 44 and I hit the pavement pretty hard. So, I mean, <laughs> I didn't bounce back as quick, but, uh, as far as uh, it's not the most injured I've been by a police officer in my life. And sadly enough, it's not the worst arrest I've had by a police officer in my life. Wow. And were the arresting officers, uh, white? I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't really, I'm pretty sure because I didn't see any officer of color out there. Hmm. Well, it's almost like they were trying to make the make your case for you. Oh <laughs> you know? yeah, like, yeah, they, uh, it, it, it's ridiculous, and and they thought for I mean, be, but they're used to that. They're used to being bullies and mm. basically being a gang. So they're you're used to their word being it. People believe them over over citizens all of the time. So what were you, what were you, um, what were you charged with? Rioting. Participating in a riot, and and the, the the wonderful part about that is that is a charge that was put on me by the county attorney. 
uh, even though the time of my arrest clearly was before there was any there were any uh, actual property damage whatsoever. I was arrested at twelve something, and there wasn't property damage until they had beat and tear bashed and pepper sprayed people and chased them back down the street, and then they were mad and angry. Do you, have, do you have any idea in retrospect who was responsible for the property damage? I do not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, angry people that had been peacefully protesting for about five hours and then were pepper sprayed and hit and bullied and slammed around by police officers. Yeah. And so uh, you were in, you were detained at the Polk County Jail for a day or two, I believe, right? I was. I was supposed to. We were supposed to get out that morning. We were, we were going to be able to see the judge. And then post bail at about nine, um, the judge came in around nine, a little after nine, uh, saw two people before me and then took a break at 10 and didn't come back until five. We didn't see him until six, um, the people that were left in there. And uh, because we, of course, thought this is ridiculous, so we'll see the judge. Well, that's not true. We were, we didn't, we didn't actually think that, but that's kind of the process so we waited to see the judge this is ridiculous the charges will be lessened and we'll just get out of here that is of course not what happened um they were still we were still put uh down as a participant in a riot um and then because it was so late in the day we couldn't even get out until the next afternoon wow. so yeah yeah and so uh, have they continued to uh, have the charges been upheld or have they been dismissed yes no, they have really? not been dismissed. Okay. So how many other people were arrested uh, that night that you know of? Uh, there were 18 people arrested when I was arrested, and then there were 30 more arrested around 3 o'clock that morning. Uh, and then there were about 58 people arrested. Uh, no, 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 no. There were about 100 people arrested the very next night, Sunday night, because that's when they enacted the current unjust and illegal curfew and so then they were that was another excuse just to pick up anybody who was after curfew so i think they arrested about 100 a little over 100 people that night yeah. Sunday and, the, night. and that was um, one of that was the that was one of the nights that kathy and i were involved we were down at the uh, uh, the, the police station and we were we were kind of working with a couple of latino pastors to try to encourage the officers to you know respect the respect what the protesters were symbolically right. demonstrating to take a knee and and they did and i i think that helped to quell the you know it, it, it helped it helped it establish did, some kind of but it didn't it, they, it would have had the officers actually upheld that but instead that's the night that's the same night they arrested 100 some people after the curfew for yeah. being after the curfew so it's it ended up seeming like a mockery instead yeah. okay. um because it didn't change anything they acted like it mattered or you know but in the end they did the same thing of illegally detaining people that they had been doing the previous night. Right. And that was not just out of Merle Hay Mall where there was uh, some... No, that was everywhere. Yeah. There were so many people arrested just walking downtown. Yeah. Well, that could have been us, too. We walked. We, uh, we, we went home yeah. that night after the curfew. But, yeah, so it's... Um, it, it's um, I do notice that since that night, uh, uh, the police have backed off quite a bit. In fact, there was a, a protest in West Des Moines where... Mm -hmm. They they didn't even show up. Yes, they <laughs> they have, and I and which is why I continuously on my live feeds and thank Des Moines PD because if not for them, the, it probably would have been squashed by now. But because of their training, which is funny because it's the exact same thing that we're protesting. Because of the training, they don't know anything different. So even though it is proven that their tactics are not effective, they don't know any other tactics to employ. Yeah. So they continue to do the same thing. So Friday night we had 40 people show up for a protest, and they employed these tactics. So then there were 300 Saturday night, and they employed the same tactics. There were 700 Sunday night, they employed the same tactics. It was 1,500 the next night. So now at this point, the last time uh, we were at the Capitol, there was, I think, a total of, I think they said somewhere between 31 and 3,300 people. Wow. And now, because now the power, it's not that the police have backed off voluntarily, it's the power of the people and the public and the, and the view of and the public sentiment has changed and has turned. So, so now where they're used to being able to do whatever they want and then the public is on their side and they get away with it, now they're, they're, the, the tide has turned. So they're nervous and they don't know what to do, to be honest. So I'm going to uh, go out on a limb here, Posh, and say that 
we're winning. And uh, we, are, we just need to... It's not over. No, it's not over at all. We need to be very much, very, very persistent here. Absolutely, because it's just beginning. And the thing is, um, it's very important to realize that we have won several battles, and that is great. But there, this is this is literally a war, and it doesn't mean a physical war, but it does mean that we are in a bat, in a war for our rights, because over the for some reason over the years, um, it has we've forgotten we've forgotten that we're the power, we have forgotten that the Constitution says that we. Uh, that the the people who govern get their power from the consent of the government. So if we choose not to consent any longer, that is our power. And now that we're waking up to that and we're seeing that all around, we're realizing that we can make the changes that we want to see. And the it's, it's it's beautiful to look around and see that the majority of us are pushing for the same thing. Yeah. We're pushing for a a a an all-inclusive, intersectional America that honestly does provide safety and liberty and happiness for all of its citizens and not just for a, a few percentage or if you make a certain amount or if you believe a certain thing. And that that is a wonderful thing. So, Pasha, it's, it's time. Let, let, it me ask, time. Let, let me ask you about this. Again, there's been so many disturbing instances, it's hard to know where to, where to, where, what to talk about. But here in Des Moines, uh, a black man who owns a business uh, attended a couple protests, and right. he, was, he was wearing a mask like everybody who was responsible was doing, and mm -hmm. uh, had his right hand up in a fist, like all of us were doing, and mm -hmm. uh, his landlord saw that photograph and decided that was causes to evict him and his business from, from, uh, from the place he'd been renting. I, I mean... Immediately, I mean, the guy didn't even go through due process, uh, and that's just right. wrong. I mean, there's there's a lawsuit waiting to happen there, but but it just um, to me it just shows the level of uh, of the lack of understanding on the part of some in the in white America about what's involved in a basic you know protest that's focused on human rights. I, I mean, I I don't know whether you know the guy or what your thoughts are on it, but I just I just wanted to raise that as a another concern that that needs to be addressed. That is a concern. Um, I don't know him personally. In fact, we are kind of working our way through the network to find out who he is and who his landlord is. But you're correct on that. That's a perfect example of not only just a lack of understanding, but the misrepresentation by the media, particularly KCCI. And I need to say that because a lot of people watch them, but they are probably the, the news uh, cast that has been most inaccurately uh, covering uh, these protests. And, and this movement. So, and I, I, and mind you, this is not just on your show. When I see them in person, I say the exact same thing to them because they have a responsibility as journalists mm. to, to cover what's going on because you have the misrepresentation um, of what's going on and then you have the reaction from people who don't understand anyway. And then you're creating more, more, more harm than good. And, and it's not, this is sensational enough without trying to, you don't have to sensationalize. Look around at what's going on in America for the first time in any of our lives, really. Uh, even in even if you're talking Vietnam, if you're talking civil rights, the majority of protesters for civil rights were Black Americans. The majority of people were for the protest of Vietnam were pacifists and hippies, beatniks, whatever you want to call them. And at the time, so this is the first time that you see such an intersectionality of America protesting and, and, and fighting for the same thing. And it's an awesome thing, but it has to be covered correctly. And one Channel of the, Five, I have to give them a shout out. Channel Five is is almost point for point in right. everything they've been covering. But Pasha, one other, one, one last question for you. The uh, you mentioned the civil rights struggle, and a key element of of that struggle was civil disobedience, whether it was uh, the Freedom Riders mm -hmm. or or the sit-ins at lunch counters or the uh, absolutely the the defying the orders of Mar and, and marching from Selma to Montgomery. Uh, you know, it, it was it was so many things, but that was certainly a key point of it. Do you see the movement? Uh, and again, let's talk specifically about Des Moines, uh, flyover country. Do you see? Uh, do you see any? Um, do you see that civil disobedience, nonviolent action, might have a role to play as we move forward in the struggle here? 
Oh, it definitely is. It, it's already played the role. It's why the curfew was lifted in the first place. And, and another reason why I had to call out KCCI. KCCI can call it whatever it wants. But the truth of the matter is 1,500 people marched to the mayor's house and sat with him and talked about a list of demands. And one of those was the uh, was the lifting of the curfew, which occurred the very next night after the meeting with the Polk County Supervisors. And and so these are conversations that are pushed by the people. This is a power of the people movement. It's very important to realize that because it's in that that we do have our power. So it is. And and yes, comparing it to civil rights struggle is 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 a good a good correlation. Um, I like to compare it to a mix between the the civil rights. Um, the civil rights struggle and the American Revolution, because really that's that's what it is. And when people are talking about um, when people are talking about the even the property damage that occurred, um, these are the same people that that seem, that are always talking about how we can support our troops and and will loud uh, the Boston Tea Party, but talk about people who who tore down a target and, and not realizing that it's the same correlation. It is a fight against the the money because that's what when you're getting run over by the system, that's what it's about. It's about their money. So when you affect their money, you send a very clear message that we're not going to take property over people or profits over people any longer. Pasha, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us because I know you've been incredibly busy. I know you've been involved with these uh, protests and actions every day. I know you've spoken at one. You're one of a handful of people who early on took an arrest. Um, so I, I commend you for all you've been doing. Sorry, I almost choked. Uh, <laughs> I'm drinking water. All right. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for all you're doing. And really just bringing attention uh, to your audience, which your demographic is um, is a, a predominantly white demographic, which is awesome to be able to, um, to bring them into the conversation yeah. if they're not. Again, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Pasha Morgan. Thanks for tuning in to today's program. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We'll be back in a couple minutes with more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, with a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Ritual Cafe, Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. And they are still available through takeout five or six days a week. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. 
All right, welcome back to the program. Uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking about some of the latest climate news. We're going to be also taking a look at Cuba and seeing how Cuba, decades ago, responded to the sudden end of its access to oil and had to make the dramatic shift from conventional agriculture to organic and more sustainable practices. That'll be an interesting lesson, I think, for all of us. But first, another uh, environmental health-based and uh, farm-based uh, issue is dicamba. Okay, so maybe you haven't heard of dicamba, but it's a, it's a classification of pesticides that are very, very effective. If you grow soybeans in particular, that uh, have been bred specifically to resist that herbicide, so that when dicamba is sprayed on your soybean crop, everything else perishes and the soybeans thrive. And so more and more farmers in the upper Midwest have adapted, have, have, have shifted to using dicamba-resistant soybeans. And of course, this was a, you guessed it, brainchild of Monsanto, now Bayer. Uh, the corporations just keep getting bigger. Again, look at the historical perspective here, all right? You probably don't remember this, but Henry Wallace, the fiery Iowa progressive who was the vice president under Roosevelt for one term before he was ousted for being too progressive. Yeah, the Democratic Party's dislike for progressives goes way back. Anyway, Henry Wallace uh, started a company called, uh, well, it became to be called Pioneer, Pioneer Hybrid. He figured out that you could take, you know, uh, how, how to make, a, uh, make a, uh, a cross that produced much higher yields of corn. It wasn't a very pretty year of corn, the, the cross itself, but it, it produced great crops. And that, of course, became the uh, the the forefather, so to speak, of the you know of the corn that had been grown in Iowa for a long time. And of course, all all that's kind of fading away now with GMO crops. But um, Pioneer, of course, was bought by Monsanto when seed companies and chemical companies merged because chemical chemical companies realized that they could genetically modify crops to uh, be dependent upon a certain herbicide or pesticide. And uh, in doing so, <laughs> uh, they created a demand. Uh, you, if you wanted the best possible yields, you would get these seeds from a chemical company that now owned the seed company that, again, used its chemicals to make sure that uh, they were going to continue to make a profit. It's a horror. I mean, most urban people, most people who aren't that connected to agriculture don't understand that that's going on and how wrong that is. And maybe the dicamba uh, controversy will help bring it more into the forefront. So uh, dicamba, um, it's bad stuff. It's bad stuff uh, environmentally. It's bad stuff uh, in terms of um, your health, in terms of the environment. And uh, it damages a lot of farmland. It was estimated that in 2017, about 3.6 million acres of farmland were damaged. Uh, because of dicamba. And again, the corn, or, or in particular the soybean farmers, but you know, farmers love dicamba because it works on crops that give them, the, give them great yields. I get that. But if you're raising soybeans or corn that don't, they can even be a different type of uh, air, uh, hybrid or GMO crop that just is not dicamba resistant, then you've got problems. And here's, the, here's the, uh, the big deal about dicamba. It drifts, and it drifts badly. It doesn't just stay in place. Uh, it doesn't just land on the field and remain there. Um, on hot days in particular, uh, dicamba will evaporate and just take off across the landscape. And when it does so, it damages a lot of other plants. And it's been happening on such a huge scale that uh, that there's been a court case, and the court, uh, the, the the I think it was the ninth district out of San Francisco ruled against dicamba, and of course what's happening now in states like Iowa uh, is there's a pushback, uh, and of course the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which again nowadays has very little to do with protecting the environment and everything to do with protecting corporate interests, uh, is pushing back against that court ruling, um, <laughs> so. The, um, you know, what amazes me is that, um, is that people don't understand that there's more than one element of agriculture in the world. You know, I, yeah, I am a farmer. 
And I actually used to list farmer as my profession when I was a state lawmaker for a time. And I got, I got a lot of flack for that because, you know, you can't be a farmer unless you're, you've got big machinery and you're growing, you know, you know so many acres of, of product and whatnot. And, of course, and you've got to be making money at it. Well, you know, there's a lot more ways to be a farmer than to have huge crops, you know, huge land, land holdings, huge machinery and making huge profits. You know, the truth is that, you know, Kathy and I probably raise more food, actual food, than most conventional farmers. Now, again, I don't want to diss those farmers. They're doing the best they can in a system that's not very friendly to being an independent entrepreneur. I, I mean, that was one of the appeals of farmer, farming years ago, was that you could kind of be your own boss. And anymore, that's tough because, again, here, here's Monsanto, now Bear, owning products that are dependent upon dicamba. So you've got to buy their seed, you've got to buy their chemicals. And if you're a livestock farmer, we've seen what's happened to that industry. You know, you basically are beholden to both the packing plant on the back end of it uh, and the, the, the company that's supplying you the hogs on the front end of it. So anyway, again, not all farmers are growing massive you know, acres of crops. They're not, we're not, they're not all corn, soybean, cotton, and wheat farmers. So here's Andrew Joyce. And he has three acres, uh, largely of tomatoes, in Missouri. Now, a three-acre tomato farm, that's pretty big. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> that, that's a lot of tomatoes. And he's given it up. He's not going to do it this year. And why? Because of dicamba because of spray drift from neighboring fields that came and basically destroyed his tomato crop. I personally do not know how you can get away with it. How can, how can one farmer get away with destroying another farmer's crops and not be held accountable? And I've heard about this on smaller scales as well. Somebody we know, in fact, not too far from Des Moines. Just a small, you know, a small operation, basically a, a big garden, you know, had spray drift, damage her crops. And why is that? Why does somebody not get that that's a problem? So you're smaller, so you're making less money, so maybe you're even just focused on subsistence. That's important. That should not be destroyed by someone else's insistent on using a chemical that is proven to be dangerous. So here's another farmer in Missouri, same problem. Tom Riley. He owns uh, farmland in what's called the boot heel of Missouri. And, uh, well, for him, um, dicamba's been great because he's, um, you know, he's got 2,000 acres, best yields ever, fields are clean, and that's kind of where the problem lies. You've got, <laughs> you've got farmers like Riley who, who are growing, what, 2,000 acres versus the three-acre farm. Well, you know, again, I'd love to see a way to get beyond the focus on maximizing crop yields and in doing so focusing on genetics that require huge chemical inputs that you know of, of chemicals that are proven to be harmful dangerous so you know and again 3.6 million acres in 2017 alone damaged by dicamba we've got a problem folks <laughs> and i commend the courts for taking action and i will preemptively uh condemn the EPA for doing what I suspect they're going to do and, uh, and ruling unfavorably, uh, basically trying to change the rules so that that court ruling no longer limits, uh, uh, you know, limits the use of dicamba. And I understand from a conventional farming point of view, I, I get it. We're, we're already in the, in the heat, no pun intended, of the farming season. And for the rules to change and suddenly you've got this crop resistant to dicamba and you can't use it. I get that's a problem, you know, and, and maybe there's a way to address that. But there ought to be ways to address the fact that, you know, when you spray this product, it's going to drift and it's going to kill someone else's crop. That's not right. And again, 3.6 million acres of farmland testify to the fact that that's not right and that has to change. You know, and again, part of the Part of why this is becoming more and more, uh, you know, newsworthy is that there are more and more people who are not engaging in conventional agriculture. And again, I, I understand why people go with the conventional approach. I mean, 
you know, what we do. Again, we raise enough food, enough product to qualify as a farm according to the USDA's definition. Yeah, we don't get any subsidies. And to be clear, we don't want any. You know, but most of the farmers raising, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this guy raising three acres, of, three acres of tomatoes in Missouri was not getting subsidized. It's the commodity crops, it's the food products or the, the, the agricultural products that end up in fuel tanks, in cows and pigs, in laboratories, in high fructose corn syrup. It's those products that tend to get subsidized. And that ain't right either. All right, folks, we'll keep you posted on what happens to Dicamba as the, uh, as the conflict unfolds over the course of the summer. We'll be back in a couple minutes on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, this is Ed Fallon, and we are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, also a hot spot for COVID-19 uh, uh, acceleration, let's call it. Hey, before we launch into a conversation about that and the climate change link, I want to take a second to thank two of our nonprofit sponsors here in the state of Iowa. Thanks to Bold Iowa, fighting climate change in the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. That's boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Learn how to turn your lawn, your yard, into dinner. Birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, again, welcome to the program today, folks. And uh, yes, uh, coronavirus still very much in the uh, public, uh, you know, public concern realm because of... Uh, well, the bottom line is, uh, the problem is the problem is not going away. And uh, one thing that's been pointed out, and this is I want to talk about the COVID climate connection. One thing that's been pointed out is that there have been some unexpected environmental benefits, uh, complements of the uh, coronavirus. Um, some places uh, you'll see wildlife, um, you know, trucking around urban streets. That's interesting to me because in Des Moines, we have that anyhow. I mean, I, I've seen foxes running down the road. We've had owls come to our you know, our place right in the heart of the city here. Uh, I saw a possum threatening my chickens the other night. So I, I don't... <laughs> maybe there are places where that's not common, but apparently there are places where, because there is less human traffic, you've got more wildlife traffic. Um you know, we've also seen a decline in 2020 uh, carbon emissions. They say it's the largest drop since World War II, and that is true. It's also only 5%, but it's having an impact. And researchers now are looking at the, um, the uh, record hot and warm, you know, the, hot, the, the, start, the, the start of the Arctic uh, summer has been really, uh, really heated. Um, sea ice melt. Uh, is happening, and they're wondering if there's a link to the coronavirus. That's interesting, or specifically to the coronavirus lockdown. So they think the possible cause could be that the uh, reduction in in uh, sulfate aerosol toxins, pollutants that come from what ships, factories, cars, other sources, they're they're, they're suspecting that those sulfate aerosols 
you know, because the, normally they, they would increase the amount of clouds and they would um, warm up the atmosphere. And, of course, making global warming uh, a bigger problem. Um, yeah, making, you know, but, but now, you know, scientists are trying to figure out if the decline is what's having an impact on, on the Arctic. So, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. They, there, there, are, there, there are research teams now in the, uh, in the Arctic area, in Siberia, in the Arctic Ocean, and they're trying to see what's going on. So looking at a report here from, from uh, uh, Monga Bay, the we it's a website. I, I, I'm not familiar with them. So forgive me for not being more clear, but that's where I found this interesting report. Uh, apparently last month, a pocket of scorching hot air flowed from Siberia and uh, it fanned out across the Arctic Ocean. It went as far over to the uh, west as Greenland and uh, you had an unprecedented heat wave. And that, that explains in part why May here in Iowa was really cold, because a lot of that heat up north pushed the cold air down south. We saw that earlier this year as well. I remember one day when I looked at a weather map and noticed that Longyear Bayan, which I believe is the northernmost city in the world on, uh, on an island north of Norway, it was 30 degrees warmer in Longyear Bayan than it was in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> it's not a coincidence. There's a connection there. So, um, yeah, in May, again, a Russian village uh, called uh, Katanga, which is north of the Arctic Circle, and, and that is almost always below freezing in the springtime. Uh, the mercury hit 77 degrees. <laughs> uh, and that broke the previous record by 23 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, you know, usually if records get broken, it's by a degree, a half a degree, maybe two degrees, but by 22 degrees. So according to records that go back to 1958, the year of my birth, by the way, no other year has been hotter in the Arctic for the same time period. So this weather uh, anomaly, it's been, it's, uh, it's being blamed for the wildfires in Russia. And we've heard about that. That's been horrible. It's also been blamed for contributing to the rapid meltout of ice in the Arctic Ocean. And, um, you know, sea ice is presently, yeah, at its, you know, at about one-fourth of what it's normally at this time of the year in the Arctic. So looking at what um, uh, Mark uh, Cerisi, with, he's a director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center, he says, quote, overall this winter wasn't particularly warm, but now that's flipped around in the last month and we're seeing the effects. Big holes are opening up along the Siberian coast where it's been the warmest. All right, so that, you know, and again, that, that fits with the fact that again, here in the heartland, May was really cool. And so this article goes on to point out that the central Arctic heat wave um, may not just be a one-time event. Uh, researchers are, you know, under the impression that this is, um, that if levels of global industrial pollution continue to fall due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the current Arctic warmth could be a bellwether of what's to come later this summer when ice, sea ice melt annually kicks into high gear. So, yeah, in other words, um, the coronavirus might actually be exacerbating climate change in some ways. Uh, Interesting. I, you know, I don't, I don't know where to go with that. I, I know that the coronavirus is a bad thing. I know that climate change is a bad thing. Uh, I know that, um, <laughs> that the human imprint on the planet is way out of whack with what the planet can sustain. And, and that's, um, I, I want to read a quote from Michael Mann and then transition a little bit there. Michael Mann, a climate scientist that I deeply respect, who I've, I've actually talked with before in the context of this program, man says that ultimately we need to eliminate sulfur pollution and sulfate aerosols, which cause lots of other problems, such as acid rain. But it is a, quote, Faustian bargain in the sense that reductions in aerosols unmakes some of the global warming that had been hidden for decades by the sulfate aerosol pollution. Okay, so that's all a little bit complicated, but um, 
the bottom line is, uh, you know, we've got we've got a lot of work to do. And I, again, I, I I mentioned Man here. I, I mean, again, I admire the guy, but he, along with Josh Fox, were two of the uh, climate voices that led the charge against Michael Moore's film Planet of the Humans. And I understand the criticism, and I agree with some of it. I agree with a lot of it. You know, there was uh, there was an unnecessary trashing of solar and wind. Uh, there was a necessary trashing of biomass. I had no trouble with the film's critique of biomass. But I thought it went way too far on uh, other types of renewable energy. Uh, but the point it was making was we can't innovate our way out of this. We can't build enough solar power. We can't build enough wind turbines to replace all the gas, oil, and coal that we are currently consuming. So the solution is not to balance solar and wind with continued reliance on oil, coal, and gas. The solution is to drastically reduce what we think we need, drastically reduce what we consume. And that involves a challenge on three levels that will be humanity's biggest challenge ever. That is addressing the overpopulation problem, the overconsumption problem, and the overindustrialization problem. And I, you know, and I again, I have a lot of respect for man. And I think this uh, this research here is interesting, uh, but it gets confusing because it it kind of it kind of misses the main point, and that is that we there are too many of us. Let's cut to the chase. The planet is not capable of sustaining over 7 billion people, especially 7 billion people who are more and more are consuming at the level that Americans have, and I should say Americans have grown accustomed to consuming at, but, but even our consumption is way up from what it used to be. Way, way, way up. And it's, it's not, it's, it, it doesn't work. You've got a limited resource base. The earth has a limited capacity to, um, to absorb the human impact. And in absorbing the human impact, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not just the planet as a, as, a, as, a, as, an, as a rock floating through space. It's all the other life systems on this planet, all the other lives on this planet, uh, whether they be mammalian or avian or, or fish or whatever. We, everything is taking a hit. Insect populations are taking a hit. Bird populations are taking a hit. Um, 200 species. Uh, is it every day? Uh, the, the, the figure is staggering so much so I have a hard time keeping it in my head. But, you know, we can't, we can't innovate our way out of this problem. Sure, let's switch production to sustainable alternatives to the degree that they are indeed sustainable. And again, another good point of Planet of the Humans is some of what goes into making solar and wind ain't very pretty and is not very sustainable. Again, better than coal, gas, and oil. Um, but the key is conservation. The key is reduction. And not just reduction in terms of energy use, but in terms of, of the human presence on this planet. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not recommending a math, uh, mass euthanasia. Um, <laughs> I'm recommending that we quickly and strategically begin to figure out how we're going to address the overpopulation problem. The conversation nobody wants to have. And again, I know that as you reduce illiteracy and as you reduce poverty, people tend to have smaller families. So yeah, that's a big part of the solution. Probably the cornerstone of the solution. But we got to talk about it. And we've got to talk about uh, what kind of um, consumption level is consistent with being able to continue to live on this planet and to give other life forms an opportunity to exist on this planet. We'll be back in a minute, folks. This is again Ed Fallon, your host here on the Fallon Forum. After a short break, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farms is going to join us. We're going to take, take a look at what happened back uh, in 1989, 1990, and going forward in Cuba, where they learned how to move by force. <laughs> they had no choice. They learned how to move beyond conventional agriculture into a more sustainable system. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. 
Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, our anchor sponsor. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a catering service. And, of course, you can order online uh, or give them a call. Stop in. They're doing takeout. It's uh, breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Again, continuing to broadcast some concerts through live stream. Uh, they are Des Moines' premier jazz and cabaret uh, hotspot. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's Noche Jazz and Cabaret down on Walnut Street. All right, so hey, thanks folks for uh, joining us today. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. With me in the studio, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And as more and more people, uh, compliments of the coronavirus, start taking food self-sufficiency seriously, we thought it'd be good to take a look at Cuba, the much maligned country of Cuba. Well, it sounds like a stretch at first, but if you just step back a little bit and think about this being the first time that a lot of people in America have known what it's like to wonder, will we get food that we need? And and then to to have an experience like we had the past couple of days where we were downtown and in front of City Hall and we were just picking and eating beautifully ripe strawberries from a planting that they've got in front of City Hall. And uh, it's, it's basically just food that's out there for anybody to enjoy. We try not to take advantage, but gosh, they were good. So consider those two scenarios. And then um, we'd like to talk a little bit about when Cuba found out that they were in a lot of trouble <laughs> with their food supply because of industrialization and how they were able to turn around their ag, ag economy to something that is more sustainable and forward-looking. Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it took uh, Cuba's oil supply with it. And, uh, I mean, Cuba had been, Cuba had an uh, agricultural economy that was compared, compared to California's. It was so modern and industrialized. You know, big monoculture crops, um, and a lot of them state-owned farms as well. Mm-hmm. And suddenly... Uh, all that, all that's gone, and they have to adjust, and uh, it takes a, it takes time. That's my problem with. I mean, I, I'm, it's exciting to see the city of Des Moines planting strawberries at City Hall. That is such a small step in terms of what we more. need to be doing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, and it, interestingly, the the, the state, um, the state owned, uh, and you capitalists out there are going to love this. The state owned farms in Cuba did a really, really poor job at adjusting to how to raise food organically, and sustainably. Uh, the small operators, the peasant farmers, uh, did a great job. That's that's where it really started turning around. And then again, later on, the uh, the, the Cuban government took that t- took those state-owned farms and turned them into cooperatives, and that worked pretty well as well. But but interestingly, it, it, you know, it's it's not you can't just snap your fingers and expect food production to mm-hmm. like turn on a dime. That's the problem. The correlations between the U.S. and Cuba uh, in those days were. Uh, there were there were um, higher costs to farmers due to dependence on large machinery and herbicides and pesticides. That sounds like the U.S. That sounds like big agriculture in U.S. In the 80s, uh, more farmers are facing bankruptcy uh, in the U.S. Um, due to that. Uh, more in, in Cuba, more farmland was in the hand of fewer and fewer farmers. That's happening in the U.S. There was less diversity of crop, poorer soil, um, was food like, was being grown as product. It was mostly about sugarcane. Was like a huge percentage of mm-hmm. the agricultural output of Cuba, and that was part of the, uh, the deal with the Soviet Union. Hey, hey, you you give us your sugar, we give you some oil. 
Yeah, that's exactly how Khrushchev right, uh, phrased it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> from Rocky, from the from the Rocky the Squirrel cartoon. I think you're doing. No, I was I was imitating Khrushchev. Okay, yeah, he and well, I go way fun. back. Yeah. So anyway, it was a, it was a fascinating experiment that was was you know initiated by necessity mm-hmm. and and hunger and food rationing and a, a lower caloric intake existed for several years before. You know, Cuba finally got it going, and I mean, and, and what's really cool is that backyard and urban backyard gardening, urban farming—not just crops, not just vegetables, but even some backyard livestock—became uh, essential in terms of how Cuba, you know, especially the bigger cities, addressed the uh, the food crisis. One of the things that they had found in Cuba, and I'll have to give credit to where uh, I got I got a lot of the information that that I'm counting on for this too. Um, a, a fellow named Peter Rossett, who is the director of, at least in 2000, the director of Food First Institute for Food and Development Policy. I just want to give credit to that source. One of the things that the government found was that when they tried to put the agricultural land in the hands of actual food farmers instead of product farmers, like sugar cane, sugar, um, very few people still had the farming cycle knowledge, the old knowledge that their grandparents, great-grandparents had had in working the land from, from starting to nourish the soil, you know, making the soil good to grow something, planting the seed, nourishing it along the way. Crop rotation. Crop rotation, mm-hmm. all the things that, that if you farm through a season or more, you learn. But they had had such an industrialized version of agriculture that there'd be one team of people amending the soil, another team of people planting the crop, another team of people taking care of weeds, meaning spraying herbicide, I think. Uh, so no, very <laughs> right. few single people had the full connection with the land. And they found that when they found the people who were connected to the land and those people were able to teach others what that meant, they were able to get food on people's tables. Yeah, And I, I think if I look at how a city like Des Moines or you pick your city anywhere in the country is going to address the pending food shortage. And let's be honest, we, we're looking at a, in a, an eventual and probably imminent food shortage. Uh, we've got to figure this out. The sooner we figure it out, the better. Um, strawberries in front of City Hall, great idea. Yum. Let's plant, uh, let's encourage the city to take all these vacant lots and, yeah, maybe some community gardens, but even better than community gardens, orchards, um, you know, June pollinators, po- pollinators, pollinator crops. Uh, you know, and um, and and also there should be some grazing ground, uh, and, and some and some actual farms. You could take some of these big tracts of land, and do what they did. I think it's called the Intervale in Burlington, Vermont. They took old, you know, used land. It had been abused and used, and they turned it back into farmland and created, I believe, five, six, maybe as many as seven farms, and farms that are. They're, they're kind of incubator farms. Farmers can get started there, but they were producing product that was, you know, that was available for people who didn't have a dairy cow. You know, because admittedly, as much as we grow here, we still don't have our dairy. Uh, we don't have our chocolate. We'll never have chocolate. Uh, that'll always be an import. We don't. We 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 don't have our meat. You know, um, and there's. There's only so much Except you can chicken. grow. <laughs> Except chicken. Except chicken once in a while. You 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 only have so much you can do uh, in a small holding. And so I think I think I think having a city that does more than just plant fruit trees and that's a great start. Strawberries, great start. But to have areas where you've actually got farms in the city operating. The additional benefit, of course, when you deindustrialized agriculture and food production in particular, is that your earth thanks you for it. Uh, we, you don't have the pesticides in the soil drifting over into other people's productive <laughs> crops, um, getting in the streams and going, killing off the the the. Um, sickening your children, even you know. I mean, come on, Ill. so many, so many problems with chemical agriculture and yeah. less machinery run production, which is fewer carbon emissions. I mean, it's a win win, and we've we mm. needed to start. Yeah. Thirty years ago, and again, I'm, I'm not I'm not philosophically opposed to using a chemical on, on a food, you know, on, on an agricultural food product if you have to. I will just say that in 
30 plus years of farming, I've never used one. <laughs> so I, I think there are cases, though, where you might say, OK, there's going to be vast devastation of this entire crop. We need to do something. Mm-hmm. I'll hold that out as a possibility. Okay. In 30 years, I haven't had to apply it personally. We're starting to have some devastation of our collard crop right now. <laughs> and, and I was researching, and I have the benefit of being able to research. Google's great, whatever. Um, I've <laughs> steeped some garlic and pepper flakes in some hot water. And we're going to put a little dish soap in that and try spraying it on to get rid of aphids yeah. on the collard. So, I mean, it, it takes some work, but that's that connection to the earth. Yeah. You know, you, you're out there, you're looking at your crop, you're noticing what's what's growing, what's eating it. Um, so I, I was fascinated with uh, when Cuba reorganized their system, they decided that the crucial factor was people needed to be connected to the soil and to the food production itself. Um, I, was, I was really encouraged by that. And, you know, when we uh, decided to incorporate Birds and Bees Urban Farm last fall as a nonprofit to teach other people to turn their yards into dinner, we could not have predicted that food security would suddenly not just be the problem of the people experiencing it at the time, but more and more people, and we don't know where this, this is going with, yeah. the, with the coronavirus in effect. It's going to take a team effort, not just individuals, but city governments, county governments, the federal government. All these entities of, 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 of our system need to get engaged. And again, I think Cuba... I know we everybody, you know, President Trump in particular and others love to bash Cuba, but, you know, they've done some things right. Not all things. Not all things. That's for sure. But when they were forced to adjust from an industrial agricultural model to a sustainable one, mm-hmm. they did it. And they didn't do it cleanly or neatly all the time. There were stumbles, but they did it. Anyway, Kathy, thanks for joining us today. Folks, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Thanks to our production team, which includes Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. And thanks to all the stations around Iowa and around the nation that rebroadcast this program. This is Ed Fallon, your host, signing off for this week.